turn in our Bibles this evening to Job chapter 6 together. We made it about halfway through chapter 6 together last time, and Job, as we have been seeing, has been seeking to process a tremendous amount of suffering and pain that's going on within his life. Of course, we saw in the opening part of the book this conversation taking place between God and Satan and how God actually allowed uh, Satan to bring a great amount of testing uh, as well as pain and suffering specifically into Job's life, probably suffering to some degree that far exceeds what many of us here on this earth uh, have or may ever have uh, to experience great loss in his life, his wealth, his business, 10 of his children perishing in one day in a tragic accident, and now a horrible health affliction on top of that, extreme pain and anguish uh, that he's dealing with in his health. And uh, Job, remember, had a group of friends who came and, and sought to spend time and visit with him, hearing about his suffering and his great difficulties, and probably in some ways a bit astonished that at this point Job has continued, as God said he would, to continue to honor the Lord and to continue to be faithful to God. And God certainly silenced the voice of the devil who thought that Job would curse God and turn away from the Lord if the blessings and enjoyable experience of his life were taken away. And yet we've seen Job throughout this process early on, it says, uh, continue to worship the Lord and continue to uh, keep himself from shifting any blame towards God, becoming angry at God in no way, even though he was being tempted to do that. And as we got to chapter 3, the silence then of his friends was broken as Job finally, after sitting there for a week and suffering with his friends, just began to kind of, it seems, just maybe let off a little bit of steam as he's processing his own anguish and tremendous pain as he's going through a great difficult season in his life. Job began, remember, to curse the day of his birth, and in essence was just sort of saying as he was trying to process this and sort through the why and the how come of what was going on, that he just wished that if this was what his life was going to result in, that, that he had never even been born. Again, he wasn't saying that he was wanting to take his own life, but he was pretty clearly saying, God, if this is what my life is going to be, then I wish the day of my birth would just have been stricken from the calendar, and I wish I never even would have come into existence if this is how bad my life experience has uh, kind of arrived to and what it's going to be for the rest of the season. Again, remember, Job has no idea what's going on in the spiritual dimension. He doesn't have answers. He hasn't read through the entirety of his book, as you and I have the privilege to be able to do. Uh, he's just dealing with this day by day and hour by hour. And after his friends listened to him kind of go on for a period of time, kind of asking some questions and sorting through some of his struggles, it's at this point that they now begin from chapter 4 all the way through about the next 30 plus chapters to begin to try and give some explanations to Job, to kind of correct him, to point out really what they think could be the root of the issue, particularly that there must be something wrong within Job's life, that God is trying to deal with him in regards to, and we saw last time as Eliaphaz began to sort of uh, speak to Job and kind of probe the issue that Job, obviously there must be something amiss in your life. There must be some sin, some wrongdoing that maybe you just haven't recognized yet, and maybe you've been kind of living a double standard that none of us have seen uh, in the privacy of your own personal life, and, and maybe you just need to get those things right with God, even described having an experience with some spiritual being, though we don't know if it was God that sort of seemed to confirm that this was his reasoning was correct. And after listening to this for two chapters, Job in chapter six then begins to answer back to Eliaphaz. And this process will go on, as I said, for about a good 30 chapters where these friends will try and debate with Job and dialogue with him uh, as Job's trying to sort this out. And it's very unfortunate because they kind of send Job down a a pretty unhealthy track himself as he starts to begin to wrestle with some of his own reasoning in this process. Now, as we said last time, going to buckle your seat belts. We're trying to move at a little faster clip through these chapters because they're a lot of poetic language and kind of difficult to get bogged down in these things. But we made it halfway through chapter six together last time where Job was describing the weight of his grief and how it was weightier than all the sands on the seashore. Just saying there at the end of verse 
13, my success has been driven from me. And now in verse 14, where we pick up, he now speaks directly to Eliaphaz, no doubt, after what he's just said to him, saying there in chapter 6, verse 14, to him who is afflicted, kindness, he says, should be shown by his friend, even though, the idea is even if it's possible that he has forsaken the fear of the Almighty. In other words, he says to Eliaphaz, listen, I'm really not looking for explanations. All I was looking for, you say you're my friends, you say you're my companions, you came here because you were concerned about me in the midst of my hardship and my pain right now. And he says, shouldn't it be when someone's suffering, when someone's afflicted, that what someone who is a true friend would do is they would just seek to be kind to them in that season? That they would just seek to be compassionate and understanding, not necessarily needing to correct them or give them explanations or certainly kind of put them in their place or making them question all the more God's goodness or maybe what's wrong with their own life. And he says, well, the only thing I was really hoping for is that when you came here in my affliction, that you would actually be kind to me, uh, that that's what he really wanted from them as friends. And I think in some ways it's a a good reminder for us that if we want to be a, a genuine friend to someone who's in the midst of affliction or a time of suffering, whether it's just maybe they're going through a hard season of their life, maybe they're dealing with a, a bad health issue, maybe they've had some tragedy that's happened in their life. Again, usually people aren't necessarily looking for explanations or for people certainly in that time to try and make them search out what could be going wrong in their life. They're just kind of looking for somebody to show them a little kindness, a little compassion, actually demonstrate that, that they actually care about them and to be somewhat supportive. And so Job just kind of saying, boy, I, I was sure hoping that I would get a little more kindness out of you than what I've gotten rather than a rebuke as the whole thing began. And he says, even if someone forsakes the fear of the Lord, in other words, even if somebody gets off track spiritually, uh, the thing they're looking at more than anything is that someone would actually be compassionate to them rather than just quickly judging them in the midst of that. So he says in light of that, verse 15, my brothers, referring to no doubt the, the friends that were with him, he says they've dealt deceitfully like a brook. And the idea here is going to be like a brook that would present to have water, but it's actually dried up. And so it's somewhat of a deceitful brook. It doesn't satisfy the thirsty drinker that comes to it. He says, my brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away, which are dark because of the ice and into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. Now, again, what he's describing here, again, I've seen this a few times I've been out in California. Maybe you've seen this other locations. A lot of times there can be a river that actually ends up just being a river bed for a good portion of the season. And when, of course, the snow and the, the rain and the, the, the runoff of those things come down, there's a season where it can fill up with water. But then there's other times of the year where you can drive over that same area and the water is completely gone. It's nothing but just a, a dirt river bed and there's no water there at all. And so here he's kind of just using that same analogy and he says, that is a tremendous disappointment if someone comes to a brook looking for a drink of water, hoping to get some refreshment out of it. It's an incredible deception and a real letdown if it doesn't quench their thirst or help them whatsoever. Now, Job's going to say this is kind of like what our experience has been so far. You came here and I was hoping that you were going to give me a, a cold drink of water or say something to refresh my soul and you've been nothing but a letdown so far. You, you haven't done anything at all to help me. If anything, he's, you're kind of just making my suffering worth. So he says in verse 18, the paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. Now he uses this same analogy, like when the caravans would come through the areas there in the uh, ancient uh, Mid-Eastern culture where it was hot and water was such a refreshing commodity. He says the caravans of Tima, they come and they look as they're searching the travelers of Shiva, hoping for them, they are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and were confused. He says, for now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. So he says, just like the caravan travelers, they come, they look, 
and there's no water in the brooks or the rivers, and it's completely disappointing. He says, boy, you've been nothing but a disappointment so far in regards to helping me out. And what's interesting, he points out verse 21. Notice, he says, for you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Now, what Job could be referring to there in verse 21 when he says, you see terror and you're afraid Perhaps what Job is recognizing is he's trying to confer to his friends. It seems to me what's going on is you're seeing all of the affliction in my life. You see how much I'm suffering and all the tragedy and pain that's going on in my life. And he says, perhaps what's going on is you're looking at my life and kind of measuring this out yourself and saying, wait a minute, Job kind of seemed like a like a pretty godly man. It seemed like he was living right before the Lord and a faithful servant to God. And if this is happening in his life, what does that mean for us? I mean, if this kind of pain and suffering would go on in his life and this tragedy or hardship would come into his life and he seemed like he's right with God, boy, that's kind of unnerving because what might happen to us somehow? If God would allow this to happen in his life, then who knows what could happen in my life? And Job says, perhaps what's going on is you're just afraid because you don't know what to do with the very fact that I am living right with God and God's let me suffer and God's allowing me to be afflicted. And you're struggling with that because you're fearful to recognize that you don't know how to process that should it come into your own life. He says, verse 22, did I ever say bring something to me? Or offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Or deliver me from the enemy's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of oppressors? In other words, Job says, I, I, I didn't ask anything from you. I wasn't even asking you to get me out of this situation. He says, verse 24, teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. So he says, look, I, I'm, I'm open. If indeed you are right, Eliaphaz, and there is some sin in my life, or there is some area where I have erred and and turned away from God, then what in essence Job is saying is, if God has shown you that I've sinned, then why hasn't he shown you what my sin is? If he's revealed to you that I'm doing something wrong, then why wouldn't he reveal to you exactly what I am doing wrong so that you could then teach me and I could understand my error And then I could repent of it and I could get out of this. So in some ways, Job's saying, if you know I'm a sinner and and this is why God's punishing me, then why wouldn't God also show you the specific sin I'm involved in? He says, teach me, cause me to understand what is the error that I'm guilty of wherein I have erred so that I could correct my paths if that's just what I need to do. He says, how forceful are right words. But what does your arguing prove? Well, that's a good reminder there because sometimes we can be so convinced that we have the right words. And when we think that we have the right words, we can be very forceful in the way that we communicate, almost to the point where we want to debate and argue. And this is kind of, of course, what these three supposed comforters, which became nothing more than bad counselors, are doing. They are becoming very forceful with their words because they feel they're right. And so they're kind of in arrogance, somewhat kind of wanting to rebuke Job and get him to wake up and recognize what's going on in his life. And he says, but what does your arguing prove? What is it solving? He says, do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one, which are as wind? He says, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate enough in this situation. Yes, you overwhelm, he says, the fatherless. Now, those who overwhelm the fatherless lack something called compassion. And he says, this is what your problem is. You're lacking compassion. You may want to give counsel. You may even be saying some things that are theologically accurate. But the problem is you lack sensitivity, Job's saying. You lack compassion in your life. And therefore, you're like someone who overwhelms the fatherless. And boy, that can be something that we can all be very potentially guilty of from time to times where, again, we can try to say the right things. We can try and say what we think would be best. But if we lack compassion and sensitivity in the way that we communicate, all we end up doing a lot of times is end up causing a lot more harm than good, especially when someone is suffering in their life. He says, verse 28, now, therefore, be pleased to look at me. 
for I would never lie to your face. Yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. In other words, he says, I, I, I'm willing to concede, but what I see, my righteousness is something I am still confident of. There's nothing, in other words, Job saying, I'm aware that I'm guilty of in my life. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? He says, chapter 7, verse 1, Is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? And not his days also like the days of a hired man, like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages. So Job makes good reasoning here. He says, I feel like right now in my life, like I'm in the midst of hard service, like a slave on earth who's waiting for my pay, who's waiting for payday and my reward. And he says, I feel like I'm just being subjected to hard service during this time. And it's almost as if in chapter seven, verse one, he's saying, look, isn't this a part of the dynamic of what it's like to live? Isn't there at times, he says, a time of hard service for man on the earth? Whereas Job recognizes life is not always constant comfort and convenience. He says there's, there's a time when hard service is a part of life. There are seasons when it's difficult and when there are days when it seems like that the labor is more intensive and life's not as easy as it always is. He says, kind of like a servant who's earnestly desiring the shade. Again, if you've ever been out in the hot sun and you are just longing for the shade, the reprieve of the shade, and you just, man, if I could just get out of the sun beating me up, just the heat of it. And he says, sometimes that's what our lives are like. We find ourselves living in a way where we're just searching for some relief. In other words, Lord, it's been so hard. It's like that hot Mideastern sun beating on you where you're just longing for a break, some shade or some deliverance. He says, verse three, so I have been allotted, notice, months of futility and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended, for I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. Look at verse 5. He gives an explanation of a bit of what he's dealing with. He says, my flesh is caked with worms. Gross, huh? And dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. So as he's describing this condition, remember these painful boils that literally it said in the earlier chapters that he would with the pieces of broken pottery, literally just scrape the open sores that were on his body. Well, and now the Bible gives us a little bit more uh, revelation. It literally says that in the midst of those wounds, that there were caked within them worms, worms crawling around on his skin, his skin breaking open, the dust mingled into it. No doubt, probably, you know, itching some form of a skin condition that's going on there. To me, in verse 3, Job gives us awareness as well. Notice this trial in Job's life, this time of suffering and affliction, it wasn't just a few days. It apparently wasn't even just a few weeks. Apparently, at least we know from verse 3 in the book here in chapter 7, at least chapter 7 verse 3 says it was at least a time period of months. Now, I don't like a trial that lasts hours let alone days, let alone weeks, but to have a trial, whatever that trial may be, some suffering, some affliction, some painful situation, and it literally lasts for months, months on end, just continuous day after day, affliction, pain, suffering, as Job's describing. And you notice he says in verse three, this has been allotted to me. He says, wearisome nights have been appointed to me, allotted and appointed. In other words, you sense the maturity of Job there to a degree, probably as hard as this was, saying, you know what, I've had to come to terms with, this is what's been appointed to me. It's been appointed to me to suffer for all these months. This is what's been allotted to me. This is the lot that's fallen out to me. Now, 
this to me shows me to agree to a great degree Job's godliness and his maturity because Job no doubt recognized as you know us as well if we're in a given situation similar to his some suffering I'm sure Job prayed I'm sure Job maybe asked a few others hey would you pray pray that God delivers me from this pray, pray that God would heal me of this physical pain and affliction pray that God would take away this season of hardship I'm going through and Job prayed and others prayed and it didn't end. It didn't end. And for month after month after month, he remained in pain and afflicted and suffering. And Job says, here's what I've come to accept. This must be what God in his sovereignty has appointed for me. God has allotted for me in these months to suffer. He didn't have the reasons why he was suffering, but what he was able to come to terms with is if I asked God to take it away and others asked God to take it away and he didn't take it away, then God apparently has appointed for me to suffer. He's allotted for me to go through this pain and this hardship. And it was a very unpleasant thing. You can tell verse four because he not only describes the skin condition, but verse four, he talks about how he was struggling even to sleep. He says, when I lay down, the first thing I think about is, is when am I going to get back up? So he had long, painful nights. Again, remember the skin condition he's in from head to toe covered in boils, probably there was no comfortable position. There was no way to get comfortable. So literally he went to bed at night and he couldn't wait to get out of bed in the morning. He says, I tossed and turned. So on top of it all, he's, he's becoming sleep deprived. He's not getting adequate rest. He's uncomfortable all night long. He says, verse six, my days are swifter than a weaver shuttle and are spent notice without hope again after you you go through a few days a few weeks a few months at a certain point you just start to say well is it even worth hoping that it's ever going to change because maybe it won't ever change uh, maybe this is what's allotted beyond months maybe it's allotted long term and job didn't know the answer to that to me what's interesting the hebrew he uses there in verse six where he says my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle the, the inference there literally is the weaver shuttle the idea is Job's in essence trying to convey, I feel like I'm quickly running out of thread. Like the weaver shuttle would be used very fast. And he's going to talk about the brevity of life in the next couple of verses. And as the, the weaver shuttle would spin real fast and it would, it would work out of thread real quick. Basically what Job's saying is, here's what I feel like. I feel like that I'm quickly running out of thread. In other words, the idea we might say, you ever said the statement, I feel like I'm on my last thread. I literally feel like I'm just on the last thread here. I'm literally about to fall apart at the seams. I'm running out of thread here. That's, that's what Job's feeling right now. He's expressing in poetic way just exactly what he's feeling. He says, to the point where I, I literally feel like I spend every day without any hope anymore. Like I'm on my last thread every day and hope is quickly vanishing. Oh, remember, he says, that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Well, that's a... A dark place to be where you feel like the outlook will never again be good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor how shall his place know him anymore. So again, speaking of of the brevity of life and death, Job could see nothing other than this ending ultimately in his death. He, he senses that this is going to lead to him ultimately dying. Verse 11, he says, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. He says, since I'm going through this, he says, I, I, I need to process it. I can't just become quiet and go silent. He says, I can't restrain my mouth. I need to speak of the anguish that's going on inside of me, he says, I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, in other words, I'm hoping I could lay down and get some comfort and rest. My couch will ease my complaint. Then he says, if that weren't enough, you scare me with dreams. Now, notice he's starting to seem to talk directly vertically now to God and not so much to his friends anymore because he says, when I'm hoping to get some comfort 
on my bed or ease on my couch temporarily, he says, then when I start to drift off to sleep, he says, God, you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. In other words, I'd rather die than continue to live in this body, in this condition. I loathe my life. That's never a good place to be. I would not live forever. Let me alone for my days are but a breath. So he says, God, honestly, can't you just just let me alone? Just just be done with me, God. If, if this is what life is going to be, as he's been saying earlier on, then God, would you just bring an end to my life? He says, just let me alone. Take your hand off of me altogether. I loathe my life. I see no meaning in it, in this condition anymore. He just says, take your hand off if my comfort will never come again. And, and just let me, he says, be left alone that I might go to the grave. Now, notice that Job, again, he says, I will not restrain my voice. He, I'm complaining, he says, in the bitterness of my soul, verse 11. But you notice as he begins to say these things, He's not complaining to his friends. Who's he beginning to talk to now? Now he's starting to express his, his difficulty and his complaint and his hardship, and he's starting to talk directly to God. Now, here's what's interesting. And you can tell from verse 17, he's certainly talking to God. The one thing that is a distinction between Job and his three friends is through this process, Job dialogues with them, but then he always goes back to dialoguing and talking to God. In other words, he keeps praying as a way of processing his pain and his hardship. And he's staying in relationship with God through this whole process. Does he say some you know, things maybe at times maybe he shouldn't say or that are a little out of balance because he's struggling mentally and emotionally? Of course he does. But the interesting thing is Job's three friends, they talk to Job, but they never talk to God. The distinction with Job is he actually proves to be a man of God because he talks to them, but then he keeps talking to God too. His three friends probably would have done better talking to Job if they talked to God a little more. <laughs> but because of the lack of prayer in their life, a lot of the things they say aren't very helpful and in some ways end up being very hurtful. But Job, he goes back and forth. He talks to people, but then at times he just pours out his heart and dialogues with God as he's trying to process his own suffering. Verse 17 you can tell he's directly here, certainly speaking to God. He says, what is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? He says, God, why, why do you even take the time to lift up a man if you're going to turn back around and take everything away from him? Why would you lift up someone and prosper him if you're going to turn right back around and visit him with severe testing, he says. I don't understand, God. Why would you let life have such a high and then such a tremendous low and painful difficulty right afterwards in testing? He says, verse 19, something we've never said, right? Two words, how long? How long, Lord? I'm sure that's never come to your mind when you've gone through a trial or difficult season in your life. Maybe you're in the middle of a more challenging time right now. And a lot of times that's the question that comes to our mind. Okay, Lord, but how long? How long is it going to be hard like this? How long, Lord, are you going to let this situation carry on? When are we going to turn the corner here? When are we going to have some resolution? When is there going to be some relief or, or the thing become reconciled? How long, he says, verse 19, notice, how long will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? In other words, he's saying, God, I feel like that it, you're glaring at me in displeasure. How long, Lord, to you, you go, go look at somebody else for a while. <laughs> Lord, I feel like you're scrutinizing my life very severely and I don't know how much longer I can take this. How much longer, Lord, will you continue to look upon me so severely? Look away from me, he says. He says, verse 20, and notice, if I've sinned, he says, have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you not set me, as, or why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Notice, he feels like that God is basically using Job for target practice. 
He says, Lord, why have I become your target? I feel like that you're firing shots at me and I don't understand. I don't know why you would allow this to be going on. And he, again, notice, where does this idea come from? The counsel of his friends. He says, Lord, if indeed I have sinned, what have I done? Reveal it to me. God, if there is something that's not right between me and you, show me. If there's some area that's amiss in my life. And look, I don't ever think it's a wrong thing to pray that as we're trying to process things. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. And, you know, certainly whenever I go through a difficulty, it's one of the first questions I ask. God, are you trying to get my attention about something? Is there something, Lord, that, you know, that's not right in my life and not necessarily even are you punishing me for it? But, Lord, are you allowing this difficulty for me to examine something or to see something in my life? And, And I think that's a fair thing to ask on occasion. But Job here says, Lord, I've searched. I don't know. What what have I done? You're the watcher of men. And he says, verse 21, if indeed I have sinned, then why don't you just pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? In other words, Lord, if I've sinned, show me that I might repent. And, And can't you just forgive me? Can't you just have mercy and forgive me and let my iniquity be taken away? Thankfully, ultimately, we can have that absolute assurance in Christ. To a degree, like Job wrestles here, we don't have to wrestle with that very thing and let that be a constant concern for us in condemnation or confusion in our life. Job says here, why will you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Well, the Bible tells us that in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we don't necessarily have to let our mind go down this track, which it it may want to, and sometimes people may feed into that, of always thinking, well, there just must be some undealt with, some unconfessed sin in my life. And so therefore God must be punishing me. I don't know how many times I've said to people before, maybe counseling scenarios where they kind of feel like because they're going through a real hardship and a difficulty in their life, That in some way it must be attached to God's displeasure or maybe God's punishing for something that either they're not aware of or sometimes we think maybe God's punishing me for that thing I did five years ago or 10 years ago. And there's that, you know, there's that one area that, man, that one thing or or two or three things, that was so grievous. I mean, that was just, I mean, that was so deeply defiled in the sight of God maybe I'm just still suffering for that a little bit. And look, let me just say, be very careful because if you are a follower of Christ, to say that God could be punishing you today for no matter what you have done in your past is in essence communicating that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was not sufficient. In essence, what you're conveying to God is, God, you need to punish me a little bit still because apparently what Jesus did wasn't good enough when he suffered on the cross. And we want to be very careful. We want to be very careful that we don't let our own confusion and emotional guilt and inability to forgive ourselves make us start to diminish the value of what Christ did. Christ suffered for all of our sins. He died for the sins of the world. And God sufficiently punished Jesus. And be careful, just if you're wrestling with your own guilt complex, that you don't diminish the value of what Jesus did just because you can't mentally or emotionally process your guilt over something in your own life. Well, after having heard Job say these things, Bildad now feels like it's time for him to answer Job as well. And you'll notice Bildad, he's very blunt Uh, And he lacks compassion. What he says is a lot shorter, but what he says, man, is is just just real strong in its severity. And you'll notice what Bildad's main error is, is he basically hyper-focuses too much upon the justice of God and neglects the reality of God's compassion and God's mercy and love and kindness and grace. And what he, in essence, does is he hyper-focuses too much on one attribute of God. 
And that's never a good thing to do. You can hyper-focus too much on God's love and forget the fact that God is holy and righteous and just. And sometimes, like Bildad, you can hyper-focus too much on the fact that God is just and he executes justice and righteousness, and you make God to be very uncompassionate and very unloving in the way that you represent him. And this is the, the mistake of Bildad. He hyper-focuses on justice from God. He says, Job, how long will you speak these things? And the words of your mouth be like strong wind. In other words, Job, sounds to me like you're just blowing smoke, buddy. Just a strong wind. He says, verse 3, does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? In other words, he's saying, Job, do you really think it's possible that God could ever be wrong in his judgment? Is that what you're doing, Job? Are you you questioning God's ability to be just and fair? He says, God would never do that. He would never pervert justice. Now, is that theologically accurate? Yes. But the way he's conveying it to Job is, Job, what you need to swallow and get over is this is just the justice of God. The judge has brought down the hammer deal with it. Job, apparently you're not willing to admit your guilt. He's kind of just taking another approach of what Eliaphaz said. And he's saying, look, there's nothing wrong with God. And that's true. But the way he's interpreting that of God's attribute is very severe and harsh. And it shows no compassion to someone who's in the midst of tremendous suffering. You can tell because look what he says next in verse four. Remember what happened to Job's 10 sons? They all died in one day in a tragedy. He says, verse four, regarding God's justice, if your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Ouch. Job, do you want to know why your 10 sons just died in that windstorm where the house fell in on them and killed all them one day? He says, sorry to tell you, your your sons must have been in sin and so God killed them. God killed your sons, Job. They were sinful, and apparently those sacrifices you offered every morning for them in case they sinned. Remember chapter 1 told us about Job's great spiritual leadership in his family. He offered sacrifices in case any of his children weren't right with God. He was kind of interceding for him. He says, Job, apparently what you did wasn't good enough. And Job, your sins, your son's sins, they, they just caught up to him. They were a bunch of reprobates. And God deals severely with sinners. So Job, get over it. They're dead because they did wrong things. Boy, that's really compassionate to say at a funeral, huh? If your sons have sinned against him, he's cast them away for their transgression. That's why they've died. If you would earnestly yourself, he says, seek God. Maybe you need to seek God a little more earnestly and you'd see what I'd see, he says. If you would earnestly seek God, Job, and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you notice were pure and upright, you may act as if you are outwardly, but Job, if you were truly pure and upright, Surely now he would awake for you and he would prosper your rightful place and your dwelling place through your beginning. Excuse me, though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. So again, he says, Job, we know that if someone seeks God, that God deals with them fairly. God is a just God. And he says, apparently, He says, you're not earnestly seeking God. And apparently he says, you must not be pure and upright. His implication, you must not be pure and upright because if you were, he says, surely God would have awakened for you. In other words, if you can't present to God a holy life, then you can't expect God to do anything for you. God's just, Job. He doesn't show grace. I mean, you got to be upright and pure. You got to earn God's blessing. You got to earn God's favor, he's saying. And apparently, if you aren't pure and upright enough, that's why God's still sleeping when you talk to him. That's why God's not answering your prayers. And and that's why he's not prospering. He says, if you were, he would prosper your rightful dwelling place. Again, the implication here, God is nothing but just. And it totally discounts the fact that God is gracious. And so many times when we are the most undeserving, God prospers us. When we are the most unworthy, God answers us and intervenes for us. I mean, think of the nation of Israel. How many times did they get themselves into a mess? 
And they weren't pure and they weren't upright. They were in idolatry. Think of the time of the book of Judges. I mean, they would go after idols and get themselves into a mess and they would be oppressed. And then they would cry out to God when their lives were not pure and not upright. And God wouldn't say, well, once you get your act together, then I'll help you. God would intervene and he would be gracious in his mercy because God's a merciful God and God's gracious. And here, unfortunately, Bildad being very severe in his nature and just someone who tends to be, as I said, very blunt in his personality, knows nothing of the compassion and grace of God. And he shows nothing of the kindness of God either in the way that he's dealing with Job. He says, verse 8, For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday, and we know nothing. That's the problem, Job. We, we know nothing. We, we can't expect to understand God's ways because our days on the earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? In other words, he's going to talk about cause and effect here. He says the papyrus plant, it, it won't grow unless it's in a marshy area. The idea is where there's some water supply to help it to sprout. So the cause and effect of water and growth. Can the reeds flourish, notice, without water? While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. Apparently, Job, your life is withering. There's a reason and a cause why your life is withering. He says, so are the paths of all who forget God. And the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, whose trust is in a spider's web. He leans on his house, but it does not stand he holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun and his branches spread out on his garden. His roots wrap around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones. If he's destroyed from his place, then it will deny him saying, I have not seen you. Again, his line of reasoning here, Job, we know with God because God is just, everything is about cause and effect. What you sow is what you reap. Now, is that true? Yes. Does God work by cause and effect? Absolutely. But what uh, Bildad is doing is he's taking a true principle and he's misapplying it in someone's life. He says, hey, we know cause and effect always happens. So he says, that tells me this, Job. The reason why these effects and circumstances are going on in your life is there must be some cause for it. Now, that wasn't true. He's misapplying a principle in Job's life that was not accurate. And what he's discounting is the fact of what he said earlier. Look, Job, we were born yesterday. We don't understand all the ways of God. Ah, Bildad, maybe you should take your own advice there and not play God in someone else's life all the time. And think every time you see a situation that you automatically can deduce the reason why that's happening is there must be some cause. And I think I know the cause behind it. Because the reality is God is bigger than our little comprehension of why things happen on this earth. And there are times when certain things are happening on this earth or happening in people's lives that guess what? I don't know the cause for it. And they don't know the cause for it. And that's something that God alone knows, but it doesn't mean we need to question God, nor does it mean we should play God in someone else's life. And we have to be very careful to always look at a situation and think, oh, there must be some cause for that. That's why that family is going through that. That's why that situation happened. That's why that marriage is falling apart. That's why that person's going. There must be some cause. There's got to be a cause for that. And sometimes it may just be that there is something going on in the realm that is above our head that's in God's dimension that God only knows. And sometimes we need to walk by faith and not have all the answers. And learn to accept mystery at times in certain aspects of how God deals with things on this earth. And rather than be very severe and harsh in our statements and our reasoning like Bildad here. He says, verse 19, behold, this is the joy of his way. And out of the earth, others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold evildoers. He will fill your mouth with laughing. And your lips with rejoicing and those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. In other words, Job, we know God always blesses the righteous 
and he punishes the wicked. And it seems that you're being punished more than you're being blessed right now. So there really could only be one cause for that. Perhaps, as he said in verse 13, you have forgotten or forsaken God and there's hypocrisy going on in your life that we just haven't uncovered yet. Well, Job answered in chapter 9 by saying, truly, I know it is so. In other words, I don't disagree with you that God is just, that God is fair. He says, but, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. So he says, I don't discount that God's just. But he says, honestly, if we were to be real, whether it be me, you, Bill, Dad, Eliphaz, he says, how can any man be righteous before a just and a holy God? No one can stand up before God and present to God a perfectly righteous life. If God only blesses somebody because they're righteous, then he says, we'd all be in trouble. Everybody should be suffering, he says, because how can any man be righteous before God? Now, here's the wonderful thing from a New Testament perspective. That question gets answered for us through the work of Christ. Because we aren't righteous. The Bible says none are righteous, no, not one. But yet we receive the righteousness of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which puts us in a wonderful situation where we can have a righteous standing before God, even in the midst of our sinful and unrighteous condition. But Job says, look, even if I wanted to contend with God or someone wanted to contend with God, the idea is you're going to bring God to court. That's the picture he's drawing here. Even if somebody were able to take God to court and say, you know what, that's it, God. I don't understand this. I don't know why these things are going on. There's a dispute between me and you of why you're letting me suffer in this way. Let's take this to court. Let's settle this out. He says, if someone were to try and contend with God, he couldn't answer them one time in a thousand. We would lose every single time. To ever question God, to ever challenge God, he says, it is the most futile thing any human being could ever do. What is it ever going to solve for me to question God? What is it ever going to do to resolve my pain or your suffering if in the midst of it I say, that's it, God. I want some answers. And if you can't give me some answers, then, then you know, you're wrong and I'm right. And, but yet a lot of times in our humanity, that's where we want to go. We want to begin to question God. But he says in verse 4, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? Boy, is that a good reminder there? Who has hardened himself against God? That's it. I'm going to square up with God. You know, I've had enough of you bullying me and pushing me around like we're going to treat God like he's a big cosmic bully. Now we're going to finally stand up to him on the playground. That's it, God. I'm, and, and we just stiffen our neck and I'm, that's it. I'm angry with you. And, and he says, when has that ever succeeded? Who's hardened himself against God and prospered? He says, he removes the mountains and they don't know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. Again, Job here just reflecting on the power of God and his creation as he rules over all things. Notice, he spreads out the heavens no interesting little inference there holy spirit mentions he spreads out the heavens you know we have learned through science and the use of things like the hubble telescope that the heavens are actually still continuously expanding something that scientists feel like that they've learned through the development of their equipment and god knew this all along because he created the heavens and the earth and here God knows much more about science than even scientists. Job here says by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he spreads out the heavens. And literally the, the Bible you know, tells us something that scientists are now discovering, that there's continual expansion going on even among the, the heavens and the galaxies and atmospheres. And he treads on the waves of the sea. That is, he's able to walk on the very sea that he created. And he actually did that. In the person of Christ, remember Jesus in the midst of the storm actually did that very thing as the disciples were in the middle of that storm that they were suffering through and they were straining at the oars and the wind and the waves were overwhelming them. And then all of a sudden, what do they see? They see Jesus come and he's treading on the waves of the sea and he's walking on the water coming out to them 
and he rebukes the wind and the waves. He gets into the boat with them, and it says everything goes still. And what do the disciples say? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they were astonished at Jesus when they saw his power. That was the same occasion, remember, where Peter tried to walk on water temporarily himself, and he succeeded when his eyes were on the Lord, and then ultimately he failed. But what did Jesus do? Did he treat Peter and his failure like Bill Dad's treating Job? What's the matter with you, Peter? He just grabbed him, yanked him out of the water when he started sinking. And you know what? As, as Job makes this reference here, who treads upon the waves of the sea, and we remember that only God can do that, and God was incarnate and demonstrated his power in Christ. You know, when I look at Jesus there in the midst of the storm when he comes and he encounters the disciples, a couple things I, I recognize from that is those disciples would have never seen the things that they did about Jesus if they weren't in that storm. If they were comfortable and dry and on stable ground, they would have never seen some of the things that they learned and saw in Christ if they weren't encountering the storm. And sometimes we may find ourselves in the midst of a storm because it's only in the midst of those storms when we're struggling at the oars that we can see things about Jesus that we would never see in any other way. They saw the power of the Lord. They saw the compassion of the Lord as he took Peter back out of the water after he sunk. And, and they had things opened up to them about Jesus. And in some ways, I'm sure as the disciples then got to the other side of that storm and they finally landed, I'm sure there was a part of them that said, you know what, that was hard straining at the oars and we were scared and it felt like we were drowning. But boy, I would never give up going through that storm to have been able to see the things that I saw about Jesus, to learn those things. And you know what? When you go through hard times and difficulties, sometimes the question to ask isn't, Lord, when are you going to get me out of this? Sometimes I've found the best question to ask is, Lord, what do you want me to get out of this? What do you want me to get out of this? What do you want me to learn about you? What do you want me to see? What do you want to do in my life? Because I've come to learn, as Job did as well, that you know what? Sometimes life is about more than just us being comfortable. Because we're eternal beings. God is more interested in preparing you and I for eternity than he is allowing us to have a smooth sail through this life because we're ultimately eternal beings. And eternity is going to outweigh this world in much, much greater ways than anything we experience now. Well, let's stand. Let's leave off there for tonight.